this stand. Well, uh, so Wilson's not here. The, uh, the cat's away, the mice can play, huh? So I'm supposed to tell all these stories about Wilson as a student. <laughs> I always re- remember Wilson, he often sat in the back. You can uh, read from that whatever that means to you, but that's often where I found him in class. But uh, Wilson to me was and is uh, really what we're, what we're aiming for over at Talbot School of Theology. Uh, I often have to, because I'm chair of the Department of Theology, boy, when you show up and that's what's leading for people, they, they think irrelevant in church, that theology is something that has become scholasticized and made something that is distant from the average person. And unfortunately, we wear that, uh, that kind of label honestly. Um, ever since theology entered the university back in the 11th century, it became a science and a discipline, and it became extracted from something of what it was, which was wisdom. And so, boy, at Talbot, that's what we still aim for, is achieving wisdom and uh, using loving God with all of our mind uh, as a means of wisdom, which means knowing what's right to do and living that way. So Wilson embodies that to me. Uh, we've, you know, I've, I've watched his story from graduate school. We even go mountain biking together, or we have. We haven't done that in a while. I don't know if Wilson still does that, but I still do, Okay. But uh, to watch his journey and to hear the story of Renew Church has just been uh, a great and warming thing So I'm to my heart, and so I'm glad that I can uh, come and see the fruit of what God is doing uh, among you. And uh, it's like Barnabas, when he is sent from uh, Jerusalem down to Antioch, where things are going, and, and it says there in Acts chapter 11 that when he saw the grace of God, he rejoiced. And so that's kind of my sense here. See, the grace of God among you brings joy to my heart. So I'm glad to be here, and we're going to talk. Uh, Wilson says you're talking about the, uh, the book of Matthew, and that is a topic about the kingdom. And so the text today is all of Matthew, right? And we're going to be uh, looking through the gospel of Matthew but we're going to be looking for something that I think touches us all. Wilson says that we, you guys lead with a question, and you guys are good at discussing. I'm not going to make you do that, because I'm a social introvert and things like that. But uh, my question for you to think about, have you ever heard someone express or imply that God owes them something? That there's a condition God needs to meet Oftentimes, when I undercan, uh, I have to wrestle with this in my own heart, but I have heard this expressed by people using excuses to reject God. He didn't meet me. I heard one woman on a train in Ukraine one time uh, in the coupe. We were, conversations turned over to God, and she says, I don't believe in him. I was in a deep valley, a dark place in life one time, and I asked for him for two hours of sleep one night, and he didn't give it to me. Not even two hours. I'm done with him. That's kind of extreme, but those conditions come a lot of ways. It often happens when those dark valleys suffering. It comes expressed in the why me? What did I do to deserve this? There's conditions behind there. 
God should not do this when we see suffering of others. What's God up to? He just sits up there, rolls the dice, comes up snake eyes for everyone but uh, me right now. It's about expectations that we put on God. And those are kind of ones that might be distant to you, but I think it's kind of common to the human heart. And it's something the kingdom of God addresses. So I want to walk through uh, Matthew's understanding of the kingdom a little bit and get to this question of some of these, of wrestling with expectations with God, because that's what it was for the people who first heard Jesus say, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. They had expectations. Here's a picture of the triumphal entry. This happens later in the book from where you are, I imagine, Matthew 21. And the people say, Hosanna, son of David. They didn't say son of Moses, son of Abraham, any other. No, son of David means something. David wasn't a priest. David wasn't a prophet. He was a king. And so when they use son of David language... By calling Jesus that, there are kingdom expectations right there. So what are those expectations? They come from out of the Old Testament, which wasn't called old to the people of Judea first century. It was the only testament. Jews today don't, don't get too far with us calling it the Old Testament, all right? They, this was their, their sacred writings. This is God's word to them. This is what you stood up to. You stood up when God spoke, when it was read. You, you stood up. This is not something you slice and dice with critical methodologies. No, you honored this. You trembled before this word or you were supposed to because that's who God says he is near to. Isaiah 66, he says, Who is the one that I am near to? It is the humble, the contrite of heart, and the one who trembles at my word. So this is their word. So what, when you say kingdom to a first century Jewish audience, Judean audience, what's coming, what's the backstory? The Old Testament tells us it in three ways. First of all, it was a hope. It was a hope for something that they didn't have then. It was a hope that there would be, God would move by His Spirit and give His people a new heart. So this is the language of new covenant that we recognize in the book of Hebrews. This is the same new covenant that Jesus said when He lifts the chalice at the Lord's Supper and He says, this is my blood of the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. It's about what the cross achieved. A new heart, and we know this. It's about the new Spirit who would give a new power. To live and walk in God's ways. That's, it's about the Holy Spirit in our lives. They had a hope for that too. The second point, God should renew social order. For a Jew, that meant reversal of the current oppressive situations that they were under with Rome. They were not sovereign in their land. They're present in their land of promise, but they're not the, the Lord of it. They have to get permission for everything. They are subject to oppression and abuse by this alien Gentile power. That was the superpower of the day. They had the prophets tell them that God would restore the fallen house of David. He would bring social order that would not just be a renewal of their state, 
of their boundaries that David had given them, of the glory and the wealth that David had given No, it would be something that would consume the whole world. For Israel and the prophets would be ground zero to culture, Eden culture that would spread all over the world. So it wasn't just a hope for Israel, it was a hope for all the world, and that's always what God has been interested in, is all his people. He just gets the universal through particulars all the time. It starts with a family, Abraham. It starts with some of his sons, Judah. And then it moves through David. And it gets more narrow and narrow. So this is the stream of blessing that will encompass all of us. And finally, their hope was, it was for the creation itself. This is those passages in the Old Testament and the prophets. I call the prophets kind of that crispy part of your Bible. Okay, that's where if, you use a, if you're still using paper and ink, that's the part where the gold is still pristine on the edges, okay? The crispy parts. We don't read it very much. But Israel, this is their, and that's to our detriment, that's to our loss. Because this is the message you find in the prophets, the hope of God's vision for the world. This is restoration of what got messed up in Eden, in every dimension of human life. And if you think salvation is just about getting right with God, you've choked it down to what it is not. It starts there for the new heart with God that is in li- alive with his power is the means to live and penetrate all parts of human life. Have you ever thought that to be human means to be nationed? Belong to a people? You don't see it much in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 because there's the, the kingdom is only two then. There's no racial diversity and ethnic diversity. But that's where it was intended to go. And it wasn't intended so that we fight at one another in our differences. No, that we use our differences to enrich and to create a mosaic around the unity of God's kingdom and God's way. And that all the different cultural manifestations that would, that would become from geographical distance and difference that we would share over the whole globe, these would still be in harmony around God's way in obedience to him. To be human means to be part of a people. You will have that in heaven. You will still be related to your people. You will be known that way. It means to be gendered too. You don't lose your gender in heaven. So these types of things, the kingdom needs to penetrate and show God's order in them. It means to have a society, a political system, a government, a military that serves the will of the living God. That's what Israel would show the world, and that's what these people were hoping for. But They were hoping for it to start with them. And so Jesus comes on the scene, and he tells a familiar story. And this is when we talk about story, we need to uh, be sure that we're reading the Gospels that way. So we take the Gospel of Matthew. Don't do any mining in there theologically without taking note of the story and the progression of the story. The same thing is true for the kingdom of God. Jesus preaches the kingdom at the beginning. And he says, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. He doesn't define anything. He just uh, starts talking about it. 
you know, let's do a little logical equation here. If you're an itinerant preacher and your whole gig is connecting with people and talking about them, talking to them, that's what itinerant preachers do, and you use terminology that they know, and you do not define your terminology, what is the assumption here? The assumption is that you mean the same thing they do, that there is a common understanding here. Jesus does not define the kingdom of God. And so at this point, we need to understand in the beginning of the story here, he is coming right out of the Old Testament playbook in everything that those three things that we just saw were about. Renew personal life, a new social reality, and even cosmic order. That's kingdom. And it would all be precipitated by a movement of God's spirit. So when he says the kingdom of God is at hand, he's talking something's afoot here of God's spirit. And he's got reference to what the Spirit would do, bring from the Old Testament there. His message is simple, but it's got a condition in it. Jesus didn't invent this condition thing. Prophets always said, God comes to this kind of a heart, a prepared heart, a humble heart, a contrite heart. I'm with the one who trembles at my word. You remember the passage in 2 Chronicles 7? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, I will hear them. The condition's there. It's consistent. John's message was the same. Chapter 3, repent. So it's repenting. Jesus says, here's the deal. The Spirit's movement, God's intervention is waiting. And so that's what he does. He waits. And that's what you see the story moving to, is that Jesus is speaking, he's proclaiming. Okay, if you want to do a little uh, little Matthew structure exercise, take a look at Matthew 4.23 in your Bibles, or note it, and then put uh, in parallel to that Matthew 9.35. This is all about this beginning period of Jesus' life. 4.23, in fact, let me read that for you. Jesus has just come, and his announcement is in 4.17, repent. But Matthew gives a summary here of this early stage of his ministry in two ways. He says, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. So he's doing two. He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and he's doing miracles. He's healing. 9.35, Jesus was going through all their cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. They're almost verbatim, those two verses, 4.23 and 9.35. In, in In theology school, theology talk, that's a fancy word. It's a literary device called an inclusio means you have two bookends to intervening material that summarizes what is in between them. When you have two statements that are the same, the author wants you to understand these summarize everything in between at this phase of Jesus' ministry. So, these two things. What's in between Matthew 4 and Matthew 9? 5, 6, and 7, Sermon on the Mount. Matthew wants you to understand this is the gospel of the kingdom. 
Sermon on the Mount. This is teaching. This is content of his teaching. What's after Matthew 7? 8 and 9, the beginning of chapter 9, are all miracle stories. So Matthew has summarized what Jesus is doing. He's preaching, teaching the kingdom of God, and he is doing miracles. So this is phase one of the story. But he is waiting. He is, uh, wants to see how they're going to sit with the condition. And that's what we start to see after this phase. In Matthews 10 through 12, what happens here? You start to see motif. That's what the Germans, all those uh, continental scholars, they would say, conflict. For we start to see now how the people are responding to Jesus. He's waiting to see, but what is their answer? If you take a look in just uh, chapter 11, verse 20, you see Jesus, he upbraids whole cities for what? Matthew eleven twenty, he says, Woe to you, Chorazin, for if the miracles done in you that you saw had been done, they would have repented, but you know. What's the problem? He's waiting to see if they will repent, but they, he upbraids them. He says, No, you're not repenting. See, what's Israel's problem is not that they have the kingdom wrong. It's that they don't want to fulfill the condition. Jesus never says, guys, don't you know the kingdom of God is the rule of God in your hearts? Don't you know that it's taking the yoke of allegiance to Yahweh? No, he never says that. What he says is, you don't repent. That's their problem. They have the idea of the kingdom right, but they do it like we do. They have expectations and they want it their way. And he's not going to play ball with that. In chapters 10 and 11 and 12 is where you start to see different levels of society responding and rejecting Jesus. Pharisees in chapter 12, they're saying, he doesn't cast out demons by the Holy Spirit. He casts out demons because he's the Lord of the flies. He's got an unholy spirit. You can't do more to reject Jesus than talk about that way. And he says, whoa, you are on the threshold of something unforgivable whole cities are rejecting him. The end of chapter 12 is really kind of a stunning episode from 1246 to the end of the chapter. It's his family comes. Mary, the Virgin Mary. Why do they want to talk to him? Well, you have to go to the answer for that to Mark's gospel. He does the parallel in chapter 3. It'll show up later on one of the PowerPoints, but it's essentially she thought he'd, he was embarrassing her. They said in Mark 3.21, he has, lost, he, he has lost his mind. There's, his own family is rejecting him. And uh, there's some serious expectations going on there when you got Mary on the wrong side of things. And John's there too. But that's happening at this season. The next phase, though is chapter 13. You need to take your Bibles and look at the next part of the story because this is serious change of uh, advance of the story, Matthew 13, 1. That day it starts out, verse 1. That day, what day? You need to read up into chapter 12. Chapters were not part of the original manuscripts here. They were put in later, and sometimes they mess up our reading. 
So don't uh, make them as the law of the Medes and Persians. Chapters and verses were not, you know, Matthew didn't write chapter 13 and verse 1. Added later. That day is the day when his family rejected him. He goes out and we see what's going on here. He goes by the sea. Large crowds gather. He got into a boat, sat down. The picture is kind of stunning. You know, the teacher sitting in a boat and the shoreline with mobs of people. And verse 3 says, he spoke to them in parables. And then comes the parable of the sower. <clears throat> in Matthew's gospel, this is the first use of the word parable. According to Matthew, and they even call it the Matthean theory of parables, in that his use of the language, he's trying to tell you something. This is new happening here. Jesus has uh, spoken a lot up to this point, but Matthew says now he's speaking parables. And you can see it not only in the language, you see it in the disciples' response a little further down after the parables spoken in verse 10. They say, Jesus, why are you speaking to them in parables? And you can almost feel the angst here among you. Here are the disciples, they're, they're part of this big thing. They're like his handlers, okay? And they're saying, Jesus, this parable thing, this new parable thing, it's not working. Uh, we better lose this. Lose the parable thing. And so Jesus tells them why he speaks in parables up to verse 16 or something in the chapter. But you see him, uh, something he's responded to the people now. He is saying, to them it has not been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, he's pronouncing, he's separating the crowds. You either have ears to hear what I'm talking about and eyes to see from the Spirit, or you don't. And my parables are for those who have eyes and ears. And I don't care if these don't get it. If you want to see, there's an interesting, the parallel of this chapter in Mark's Gospels in chapter 4. It's where the parables of the kingdom that are in here in chapter 13 appear in Mark. And at the end of chapter 4, in verse 33 and 34, you can see that this is Jesus' MO from this point on. This marks a change in his ministry. He said he continued to speak parables to the people as much as they were able to hear, but he was privately going to his own disciples to see if they understood. So from this point, we're saying Jesus seems to be, he's still preaching, he's still healing, but he has now divided and he is working with those who know what's going on, the disciples. And he will go. And he will say, did you understand? He will ask them. He doesn't do that to the crowds. He will let them. He will still put the offer out to them. Perhaps some of them will see and change. But now he's already working. He's working with his people. So he has brought now a new teaching of the kingdom. And that's what's a little stunning in the Gospel of Matthew. And that's what follows in chapter 13. If you just have the Old Testament as your playbook... As your description of the kingdom, none of this comports very well. Something new's on the scene, and Jesus has changed. He's moved on. So you get things like, uh, the kingdom is present. What do you mean? To a Jew, the kingdom is present? No, I don't see a Davidic king sitting in a throne whooping on Romans. How can you tell me the kingdom's present? He'll say the kingdom is secret. It's like yeast permeating dough. It has effects. It changes stuff, but you don't see it work. 
What do you mean? The kingdom is supposed to be regal, royal, supposed to be political, social. How can you say it's not visible like this? And you go on and on down this list. It's taken from Israel. What? Taken? And he means taken from Israel's leaders. How can you say that? Israel's ground zero of kingdom in the Old Testament for the whole world. Go on. It'll be consummated in judgment, the wheat and the tares. There's coming a time when kingdom gathers all, but there will be sifting and separating the sheep and goats. The kingdom is about... It is of great value and will be responded. So all of this is kind of new and kind of uh, you know upsetting, disturbing the status quo. So the question is going to be, this is kind of how Jesus, Jesus says there's some aspect of the kingdom that's now. And it doesn't look like the Old Testament. But did he dump the Old Testament is the whole question. A lot of folks think he did, that he totally wrote off what the prophets said as far as politics, as far as restored Israel nation, as far as uh, Israel being ground zero for a worldwide government and worship. I don't think he did. In Matthew, you have the kingdom not yet still held out. It's just not now. It's just not now. There's something else of the kingdom that is now. But this is something that's still coming. We call it the already and the not yet. Okay? Already is the parable, secret, invisible, quietly working. Not yet. This is language, Matthew 19, 28. Disciples are saying, well, then what's the big deal? What do we get? We've left father, mother, and everything. What's in it for us? He says, you have a place. Something's going to happen, and you will sit over the 12 tribes of Israel. So he assures them, and this is still a long Old Testament line, what the prophet said. How about Matthew 23? This is where Jesus enters at the, uh, the last time to Jerusalem. And he looks over the city and he weeps. This is where I would have gathered you, like a, like a hen gathers her chick, but you would not. And therefore he says, your house therefore is being left to you desolate. In other words, he's saying it's not going to get better for you. You're still going to endure endure this kind of exile that you are experiencing now. But then he uses the language, until you say. So he talks about a time when they will change their view. And that's just what the prophets said too. Zechariah 12 says that when the Spirit is poured out upon the house of Israel, they will mourn over the one they pierced. They haven't pierced him, but there's coming a day that they will mourn for what they're going to do. So he's still playing the Old Testament playbook here. But where this engages us is what I call kind of a forgotten beatitude. You know the Beatitudes are in chapter 5. Blessed. Blessed is the peacemaker. Blessed are the humble of heart. There's another Beatitude that appears in chapter 11. In 11 verse 6, it's it's one that's put on the address of John the Baptist. John has, you know, you think about what John, John is sitting in prison now. And in chapter 11, in part of the story, we said it's the part where there's questioning and struggle and conflict with Jesus' offer. John's condition right now is part of that. 
And he says in verse 1 and following, it says, John sends Adela. He's sitting in prison. Herod's stinking, rotting prison. And he sends a delegation to Jesus. And he says, are you the expected one? Now, wait, just back up a little bit. Who's John here? A couple of months prior to this, John is the one who has introduced Jesus to the world. He says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John knows who he is. I'm unworthy to unleash the sandals, the straps of his sandals. John knows who he is. But now John's doubting. What's that all about? It's about expectations. See, John has got the expectation. And John shows us, and Mary, who's coming up next, is going to show us that these expectations that we can put on come from insiders too, you and me. We're not the ones who reject God. We're the ones who love God, who love Jesus. Jesus is our master and our Lord, but we can have expectations for him too. John's dealing with it. John's expectations are Old Testament. They are Messiah will come and restore order. But he's sitting in Herod's prison. It's like, where's the restoration of order, Jesus? Come on, we should hear at least some anti-Roman rhetoric. We should have some works of power that kind of start to move this thing in the right way. But I'm losing my microphone. I'm sitting in Herod's prison. It's upside down. It's not working, Jesus. Are you the expected one? John starts to doubt. And that's when Jesus says, he quotes out of Isaiah 35, and he says, uh, go and tell John what you see and hear. The lame walk, the blind see. So Jesus is the one. He's just not working in John's timetable. It's one of the ways that we import expectations to God. He's not given it when we think it should be. And so Jesus says, how blessed is the one who doesn't take offense at me. And so we hear something about kingdom here for all of us. The king is the king. And how we rest and how we trust and how we expect and we need to check our expectations at the door sometimes of what we think uh, they subtly works in. And suffering is one of those times that exposes our expectations. How many times have you heard, you know, I've uh, been an elder at my church and walking with people, and if you're a human being, you're going to walk with people in dark valleys. Suffering, loss, disappointment. Those aren't the times of best theology. People say things. They accuse God. Why me? What did I do to deserve this? There's a condition in there. There's an expectation. God shouldn't do this to me. It's in loss and things like John is facing that. I'm sure it wasn't really pleasant to be Herod's prisoner. And that makes him wonder, are you the one? Is the expectation that Israel, are you the hope of Israel? So he asks a question, and Jesus says, Blessed is you don't take offense of me. Follow me. Check your expectations. And it goes to a deeper question, too. Mary is facing this as well. We already mentioned her. She brings the fam. 
And she's just doing, uh, here's what Mark says, uh, why she wanted to see him. She is just doing what the law said to do. If someone of your family is embarrassing you publicly, you don't call the white the guys in the white coats to remove them. You go yourself. Family was responsible for the family's reputation, so she's just doing what the law said because she, Jesus was embarrassing her. Because, he, I mean, listen, think about her. Okay, she's not just, uh, she heard from an angel. Okay, it was 30 years ago, not just a couple of months. But the angel said, he will sit on the throne of his father, David. You will call his name Jesus and he will save his people from their sins. She heard that from an angel. And now she's doubting. What's that about? It's about expectations. She has the same expectations. When do we start to see the things that the prophets said? You're just kind of playing this waiting game and you're not fitting my expectations and my timing. There's lots of ways that... Oops. Blessed is the one who doesn't take offense at Jesus. And sometimes that's our posture to God. When we are disappointed, when we don't get something we're striving for in this world, out comes the subtle expectations. You owe me. I'll tell you one that I worked under a long time ago, and for a long time. Um, I have a college-age son, and he says you, you use the word, for daily devotions, you use the word devos. Okay, So he, I used to have this uh, belief that if I did my devos every morning, it would be a good day. And that it suddenly came into that if for some reason I missed my devos in the morning or something, uh-oh, the cloud of, uh, uh-oh, something bad's going to happen, that uh, I might as well just get back in bed and start this thing all over. This is a wash. It's expectations. I do this, God owes this. It's a merit system, and our heart goes to that very easily. I have my accounting column, and here's God's. I do such and such. He, he's obligated to give such and such. Jesus says, blessed is the one who takes no offense at me. God doesn't work that way. How can you not take offense at Jesus? There's some important things. You have to trust that he knows what he's doing. And that's what he's saying. Don't take offense at me. I'm the lead. I'm in the lead here. Check your expectations behind what I'm doing. Another one of those little crispy books is Habakkuk. Right? I heard him said one time, Habakkuk. No, he's Habakkuk. Habakkuk 1.5, the prophet calls out. And he says, Lord, when are you going to do something? And the answer is something that kind of has recently been hanging around me. It's like, God says to you, I, God says to me and to Habakkuk and to all of us, I am doing a work which if someone told you, you would not believe it. Just because I don't see it doesn't mean he's not working for good. 
Because that's the way he is with his people. His love is not conditioned. It's not merit-based. We sang about it and we worshipped it, worshipped about it, of his great love for us. We go back to Romans, Romans 8.28. God works all things together for, those, for the good, for those who loved him, who are called according to his purpose. I want to suggest to you that there's a better way to read that. God works all things for the better, not just the good, the better. And I get that from Isaiah, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. That's another passage of the prophets that comes out at Christmas time. It says, And he shall be called Almighty Father, Prince of Peace. Uh, and it goes on, and then Wonderful Counselor. And then the next verse says, In the end, and the increase of his kingdom, there will be no end. We had, when we were missionaries, uh, our mission sent a veteran missionary. We were, we were opening a new field in the, the former Soviet Union in the early 90s. That was the Wild East, I tell you. So we had this veteran missionary, and he was kind of a mentor, and he, he reminded us that out of verse 7, 9, 7, and of the increase of his kingdom, there will be no end. That means it's always increasing. And he just made this one statement that has stayed with me all my life since then. Change in God's economy is for increase. Change is for increase. No matter what change is happening, some of you may take them as negative, setback, disappointment. Change is for increase. God is able to work good for you out of all change. He's moving you forward in his plan. He's also able to work good for all circumstances around. In 2007, we had to leave Ukraine. My wife's breast cancer recurred. And you could say already they're 13 years. They learned Russian. They're speaking in the language. They got all these things working. You could say it's all, it's all working on, firing on all cylinders. Boom, we're extracted, taken back here. Not only are we dealing with cancer, we're leaving something that you could say, they're just right, it's just starting to get going. Change is for increase. Every time you sit and you suffer defeat, a setback, a disappointment, a tragedy, God is asking you a question. And it's a kingdom question. The question is, am I enough for you? Am I enough for you? And then the sub, or do you need me and this financial thing, whatever you're disappointed? Do you need me and this relationship? Do you need me and this particular diagnosis from a doctor? That's the kingdom's question. And it's about taking offense, holding expectations, and resting in the goodness of God that makes increase always. He is always at work for my increase, for your increase of his people, according to the things that he thinks. It's about expectations. This is the scene, a uh, dramatization scene of the, the triumphal entry. Everyone, Hosanna, son of David. They got expectations. And Jesus says, 
Blessed is the one who takes no offense at me. I pray that his kingdom, his kingdom work in you will grow and mature and move in this direction. It should become, become, we all become better tr- folks who trust so that we can not take offense and we can check and we can recognize, ooh, there's some expectation work in here. Blessed is the one who doesn't take offense at me. Let me pray and uh, we'll be done. Or I will. You won't. (laughs) We won't. (laughs) Okay. Our Heavenly Father, oh Lord, help us, cause us to walk in your way so that we see your heart. And we know this love that you have professed and that you are working even despite our inability to see it, and even despite the offense that we may take in you and the questions that we may... Lord, we thank you that you're big enough for our questions and that your calm voice says, Blessed is the one who walks with me, who takes my yoke, who will follow my timing for good, my definition of what is success and good and what is increase, and what is not. Lord, sort all of these things out by your Spirit in our lives more and more. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.